hey, let's start off this morning and have a little bit of fun. You're allowed to do that in church. So if, if you have a zoologist hat, and I'm not sure what that looks like. I imagine it's like the guy who found Curious George, like a big yellow hat. You should wear that hat often. And I want you to put your zoologist hat on this morning. And I want to show you some pictures of different groups of creatures, of insects, of animals. And I want to find out if you can identify what these are in a group. You, you'll probably be able to know what they are as individuals, but... I'm curious if you can say out loud what these different creatures are when they're together in a big group. Okay, so here's the first one. Yeah, okay, yeah, you got ladybugs. I'm proud of you. But when, when they're all together, they have a special name. Does any, any of you know what you call a big group of ladybugs? A bunch. No, that was, that was a good try. That was a good attempt. A group of ladybugs together are called a bloom. A blo- Isn't that fitting? I mean, they're, they look like they're just blooming. Okay, so here's the next one. Oh, okay. Owls. These are clearly owls. So when owls are gathering, what do you call a big gathering of owls? Gr- a group? Is that hoot? A hoot? That's... No, that's not, a, not even close, but that was, I appreciate the creativity, though. That's really good. A big group of owls are called a parliament, isn't, and don't they look wise? I mean, isn't that a fitting name? These guys could probably choose a speaker pretty quickly <laughs> if, they, if they had to, right? Because I couldn't help it. Okay, so here's, here's the next group. Okay, lemurs. These are lemurs, and so when they're together... Not even any try. You're just going to give up. I've already broken you. Okay, they're called a conspiracy. Seriously, yeah. A conspiracy of lemurs. And you can see it. I mean, they, they look shifty. And what, what they do, lemurs work together to try to trick predators and fool them. And so they got this name. A conspir- they're like your kids when you walk into the room. And it gets quiet, and they just look at you with big eyes. Okay, take a look at this next one. Okay. Hip. These are, I'm, I heard several. Hip, hippos. These are hippo, hippopotami, hippopotamuses. So when they're together, what do you call them? A herd? Not a herd. No. No. This one really fits. They're called a bloat. <laughs> a bloat. That's very insulting. And, okay, this, let's take a look at this next one. Oh, okay. Yeah, giraffes. What's that? A journey? No, not a, not a stretch. That's a nice try. Okay. So giraffes together, they are called a tower. A tower of giraffes. Okay. So here's the final, here's the final picture. Don't, don't say this one out loud, but this, this is a bunch of LifePoint Church in the wild. In, in their natural habitat, you can see LifePoint Church gathering for worship and connecting in relationships with each other and then going out and serving and making a difference together. This, I mean, most people would call these individuals, these particular individuals, would use the word Christian. And then when, when people like this are put together in a big group, they're not a conspiracy or a parliament or even a bloat. No, we, we use the word church. 
And these words are really important. In, in a few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about what these words mean and what their significance is for us, but, but take a look at that. This is Life Point Church, worshiping God and building relationships that are life-changing and reaching out to make a difference and to reach other people with God's love. So I, I want to ask you a question to consider. If a, if a third-party impartial observer t- took a close look at your life over time, a zoologist in a funny hat or aliens who are plotting their invasion, what name would they put on you? What label would an impartial third-party observer attach to you according to the characteristics they see in your life? You know, life really is better together, whether, whether it's a bloom of ladybugs or Christians gathering in a church. And this week, and then for the two weeks following, three weeks together, we want to take a closer look at the identifying characteristics, really the identifying characteristic of people that are called Christians and people who are gathered in something called the church and, and even what we hope to be true about LifePoint Church, the, the one single unifying characteristic that could cause a third-party observer that lives in your neighborhood or that you work with to say, yeah, I, I know what they're about. I, I know who that person, those people, I, I know who they are because I can see it in the way that they live. Jesus gave us this identifying characteristic. In Matthew chapter 22, and you can turn there if you have your Bible, you have an app, you can flip to. Uh, Jesus was confronted with three questions by his enemies. His enemies came together, they wanted to trap him, and so they gave him three questions. The first question was political, about taxes. He knew that was a trap. There's nothing safe about that. The second question was very theological and about the resurrection. The third question was biblical. It was a a Bible question. Someone, a, a lawyer, a teacher of the law, they asked Jesus, which commandment in the scriptures is the most important? Which one is the biggest one, the greatest the most significant question that Jesus answered was this one. What's the greatest commandment that's in all of the scriptures? And I want you to see Jesus' answer, and and this is what will occupy our thoughts and our time together this week and, and then for the next two Sundays. In Matthew 22, verse 37, you can see this on the screens, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, for the next two weeks, next Sunday and the week after that, we're going to focus on the second part of this commandment and think about what it looks like when we love one another 
in the church. And then when we reach other people with God's love, people who are outside of the church, what does it look like and how do we love our neighbors and what changes? But this week we want to focus in on the first part of Jesus' answer. Love the Lord your God completely with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with with everything that you are. Now, I mentioned those words Christian and church. And have have you thought about, have you realized where those words come from? Because it's important for us to, to really think about as we start defining that characteristic of love. The word Christian, it didn't come from Christians themselves. It actually came from outsiders, from people who were observing the lives of of these early Jesus followers. There was a church that was established in a significant influential city of Antioch. And it was in that place as this church grew that that Jesus followers who didn't really have a a name, there were different names applied to them, people of the way. and, And there were a few names competing for attention, but people on the outside, they observed the lives of this new group that was forming. And those outsiders put the, ner- the, the name, the label Christian on this new group. And Christian just means little Christ. And it followed the, the naming convention of the day because, you know, people who supported Augustus and who worshipped the emperor, they were called Augustinians. And political people who were really interested in supporting Herod, they were the Herodians. And so it just made sense that this new group, they would be called the Christians They would be called the little Christs. And and people observed the way that they were living and how their allegiance was toward Jesus Christ and how their life was different. And so they gave them this label. The term church is a little bit different. It existed before the, the church as we know it began. Jesus was the first person to use the word church and apply it to his followers But the word existed before he took the word and then redefined it. It's the word ekklesia in Greek. And in Greco-Roman culture, an ekklesia, it simply meant a group of people who were called out for a specific purpose. And so an ekklesia, they might be a, a civic group. A group of people who were part of a city, part of a community, and they were called out from the rest of that community for a purpose. And they were going to help build a building or a road or create some kind of civic improvement. The word ecclesia was applied to bands and musicians, people who formed their own close-knit community, and then they traveled and they performed. This word was applied to different people, but in Matthew chapter 16, a few chapters before the verses that we read in Matthew 22, Jesus grabbed this word and he applied it to his people, to his followers. As as Jesus was beginning to change direction and and point toward Jerusalem for the final time, and, and he knew that his death was approaching, he was talking about that with his disciples, he took them to a unique place a place called Caesarea Philippi, a city that was built on rock cliffs. And there were different uh, temples for pagan worship in this area. And Jesus sat down with his followers and he asked them a really important question. He said, hey, you know, who are people saying that I am? And who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And that's the moment when Peter spoke up and he said, you 
are the Christ, the Messiah. And more than that, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus responded. And he said, I'm saying to you that you're Peter. You are a living stone. And on this rock of this confession that you have made, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be one of the stones that I use to build my church, my ecclesia. And it's going to be built on this solid rock and foundation that is me. It's a powerful word that Jesus took and redefined that includes us, that includes LifePoint Church. This is an amazing, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing to think about. That when we gather and we raise our voices in worship, when we explore the word of God and, and try to live out the truth that we see there, when we build relationships with each other that are life-changing and that are supporting, when we reach out to show God's love to other people, we are part of the church that Jesus has been making and will continue making and is making right now. That's an incredible thing. And when Jesus went on to define the characteristic of these people that would be called his church, repeatedly he came back to this quality of love. And here in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus found a way to emphasize this quality. What's the most important command in, in all of the prophets in the law? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. To love God completely and entirely with everything that you are. Now, sometimes we can get hung up on those different parts and try to think about those different parts of who we are. Jesus was really teaching us that we're called to love God completely with every part of us, heart, soul, and mind. And when we love God completely, it changes everything about us. And I want us to think through three different characteristics that, that correspond to our heart, our soul, our mind. Not exactly in that order, but what it looks like when we begin and when we grow in loving God completely. First, when we love God completely, we become worshipers. We become worshipers first. Jesus said, you need to love God with all of your soul. A worshiper describes the position of our soul that gives shape to all of our life. When we begin to love God completely, we are transformed into worshipers, into people who understand and respond to the truth that there really is something greater than me. There is a person who is bigger and stronger and more beautiful and more wonderful and more complex than I can understand. And that person demands and, and should receive my worship. There's really two different basic ideas 
about worship that, that runs behind and underneath all the different words that are used for worship in the scriptures, in the Old and the New Testaments. And both of those words describe the position of our soul and how the position of our soul shapes the rest of our life. The first position is bowing down. It's falling prostrate to the ground, dropping to the knees or dropping straight on the floor because you're in the presence of one who is greater than you and you are exalting them and demonstrating that they are lifted up above you. And sometimes people would do this with royalty, bowing down. And then the second position is getting busy. It's doing something. It's becoming active and engaged in serving. It's serving with my whole life the one who is exalted, the one who is lifted up, the one who is greater than me. That position of our soul, it gives shape to the rest of our life. I want you to see a quotation from a theologian who, who thought and wrote and taught quite a bit about worship. His name was Robert Weber. I want you to see how he described worship in, in one of his books. He said, because God is the subject who acts upon me in worship, my participation is not reduced to verbal responses or even to singing, but it is living in the pattern of the one who is revealed in worship. Worship is not a genre of music. It's not a musical style. It's not even a particular set of songs. Worship is bigger than something we do for the first 20 25 minutes of a worship service. Worship is not a feeling that we get that comes over us and that's uncontrolled. It's not an emotional buzz that gets us from one low point to the next higher point. Worship is a whole way of life. Worship is understanding that everything that I do, I'm in a position I'm, I am beneath one who is greater than me. And then everything in my life, every gift that I've received, every experience that I have, it's a gift from God and I'm responsible for that. And I have the opportunity to steward all of those experiences and all of those gifts as a service to God. And sometimes I bow down and I prostrate myself. And we do that together when we raise our voices in worship. But all my life, all the other six days of the week, Everything that I'm doing is an act of worship, and God is acting upon me and shaping me to become more like him. When we love God completely, our soul changes, and we become worshipers. Second, when we love God completely, we live the truth that we know. We don't just try to gather up more truth, but we try to live the truth that we already know. Jesus said, when you love God completely, it means that you'll love him with your mind. And, and this theme is picked up by other New Testament writers. The Apostle Paul, among others, he takes this theme. And in Romans chapter 12, 
Paul makes it really clear. Hey, don't let this whole world system squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed and be changed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove, so that you can live out what is the good and acceptable and pure and perfect will of God for you. We don't just need to gather up more truth. We need to allow the interior of our life to be transformed so that we live the truth that we already know. At LifePoint Church, we want to be people who are putting into practice the truth that we've received and the truth that we've discovered. We don't just want to talk about the truth. We don't want to be the best educated Christians that there are, but we want to keep growing in how we live the truth that we already know. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told a story about it. You've heard it. It's a story about the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man, he built his house on a firm, solid rock foundation. The foolish man, he built his house on sand, a shifting foundation. When the rains came, the, the sandy foundation house was wiped away. The house on the rock stood firm. And Jesus said, I want you to be a doer of my words not just hearing them. I want you to do them. And then his half-brother James must have been around and listening to some of that because then years later he wrote a letter to the church and he said that the people who do, who do the truth, who live the truth, they are blessed. So don't just listen and be a hearer. Be a doer of the truth. Live the truth that we already know. That's what happens when our mind is shaped by our love for God. Our life follows that shape of our mind. We know, we already know that we should tell the truth. But sometimes we become concerned about what other people think about us, how we might look, and so we become deceptive. We lie. We say things that aren't true. We we know that it's better to be generous than greedy, but sometimes we become concerned about our own security and we're tempted to hoard what we have instead of sharing it freely. We, we know. We know that being proud, it does lead to stumbling and falling. And we exhibit that pride in different ways, but it's hard to give up control and to live a life of humility where we try to put somebody else's interests in front of our own. For most of us, and I love learning new things, but for most of us, we need to learn to live the truth that we already know rather than just storing up more truth and keeping it to ourselves. When we love God completely, Our soul is shaped and we become worshipers and that gives shape to our whole life. And we live the truth that we know because the internal parts of our our mind has become transformed and and our life also follows in that direction. And, And then third, this was the first item that Jesus mentioned about our heart. When we love God completely, we receive God's gift of love into our lives. And that's not a one-time event. That's something that happens all the way through our lives. Different 
experiences in life help us understand God's love and different situations and different positions that we find ourselves in. People who are single, who live a life of singleness, they have an opportunity to explore and experience God's love in ways that I don't have anymore. A single person can understand a single-minded devotion to God in a way that, that a married person just can't. A single person can also understand God's inclusive love, love that, that has big, wide arms and reaches out to include anybody and everybody through friendship. As, as a husband and as a father, I have the opportunity to experience God's love in different ways. As a husband, I can understand God's exclusive love and love that is faithful and committed over time. What that looks like in a relationship between my wife and me and how I receive that kind of love from her and how I can give that kind of love. And as a father, I, I've learned a different kind of love. When my children were born, when my we had a milestone birthday this past week that causes you to remember some of those moments. And I remember when my first child was born and then with each successive child, I began to realize that there really was nothing that child could do to make me love them anymore or to cause me to love them less. And of course, that's been tested over time. And as they, you know, they, they keep getting older and they, they find new ways to push those buttons, but, but it's still true. And when Jesus wanted people to understand who God is and how our relationship with him works, he told a story. He told a story about love in Luke chapter 15, and he used family relationships, the relationship of a father to his two sons. A man had two sons, older and younger, and one day the younger son came to his father and said, Father, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I could have my inheritance and I could be enjoying it, so why don't you just give me what's coming to me now? I'm sure the father wanted to give him what was coming to him, but in, instead he responded graciously and he divided his property and he gave the inheritance to his younger son. That's shocking. That's surprising. It would have scandalized the, the listeners who were hearing Jesus' story even more than it does us, but that hurts. In time, the younger son then took his inheritance and he, he left. He skipped town. He found a new place to live and he lived it up. I mean, he lived the party lifestyle uh, until he, he used up all his money. There was an economic downturn, and he lost everything that he have and had. And, and then the son did something that he would have thought was unthinkable. He got a job. And it, and it wasn't a good job. It was a terrible job feeding pigs. And his condition continued to worsen until the point when the food that he was feeding the pigs started to look like good food to eat, the scraps and the slop. And that's when this younger son hit rock bottom and he created a new plan. He started to come to his senses and he said, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. There are hired servants and workers in my father's household who are living better than I am. I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore. I, I had that opportunity and I blew it. But I'm going to go back and ask him if he can just give me a job so that I can work in his household and at least then I'd be able to 
eat good food and have a warm, safe place to sleep at night. And so the son began to make that journey, long journey, home, walk back to his father's house. The father must have been looking for his son over time because as Jesus told the story, he said that the father saw his younger son coming from a long way off. And the father did something else that was unthinkable in that that Eastern culture, the father then ran to his son. Now, that was a sign of dishonor because the father was in a greater position than the son, but the father stepped away from that elevated position and he ran after his child. Wearing rags and dirty, he must have recognized him by the way that he walked. And the son was ready. He had his pre-planned speech all ready to go. And he tried to get through it and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me and give me a job and let me be one of your workers. But he couldn't even get all the words out because the father had wrapped his arms around him and had called for new clothes to be put on him and a ring. And he called for music and food. And he wanted to throw a party because this was his son who was lost and is now found and who was dead and is alive again. So they came back to the house and the father had his son all cleaned up in these new clothes and then they threw a party for the whole community. And in the meantime, the older brother has been out in the fields working hard all day like he did every day. All those years that the younger son was being lazy and partying and he came back to the house and he asked, what's going on? Why is there this music and party? What's all this about? And And one of the workers, they said, well, it's your brother. He came home, and your father's throwing this big party for him. And the older brother was resentful and angry. He refused to go inside, participate in the party. So the father did something else unthinkable. He came outside the party to pursue his older son, his older child. And this boy was angry. And he let his dad have it. All these years, I've worked hard for you. And you never threw a party like this for me. You never called all my friends over and got a band together and and did something like this. And your son, your son, who wasted everything you gave him, he comes back. And then you respond this way? And the father said, son, everything that I have, it already belongs to you. But it's right that we should celebrate and welcome your brother home because he was lost and now he's found. It was like he was dead to me and now he's resurrected and come alive and he's come back into the family. And the father tried to pursue his older child. Now some of us, we identify with the younger brother and some of us with the older child. It's worthwhile for us to think about, you know, who do you connect with or identify in that story? Because every one of us have a common problem of a, of a blockage to receiving God's gift of love in our lives. Some of us, we're more like that younger brother. And we've tried the route of self-exploration and self-discovery. And now we're carrying around a, a heavy load of shame and guilt. 
where we feel unworthy to be called a child of God. And it's hard for us to receive God's love and forgiveness because we're so covered up in shame and guilt for what we've done. Now, others of us, we see ourselves differently. We've worked hard and followed all the rules and we've done the right thing over time to the point that we believe we've earned our Father's love. And then we haven't received what we believe we're entitled to. Life didn't work out the way we thought it should. We didn't get what we wanted. We didn't get that party that the other guy got or the position or the experience or or whatever it is. And now we have a blockage to receiving this, this free gift of love because we feel entitled. Because we followed all the rules and things still didn't work out for us the way we wanted it to. Our reality is that whether we've been a rule follower or a rule breaker, our Father's love to us is an unearned gift that He extends to us because of who He is, not because of who we are. And when we start to receive that gift of love, we learn how to return that complete gift of our love back to God. When we love God completely, we've learned to receive his gift of love into our lives. And we start living the truth that we know. And the position of our soul changes. It affects the whole position of our life so that our whole life becomes an act of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. God, our Father, some of us, we've, uh, we've gone our own way and we've tried to find ourselves through different experiences. and We feel a lot like that younger child. And others of us, we've stayed at home stayed close to home and followed all the rules to the point that we think we can leverage you to being and to doing what we want you to do. Help us all to understand that your love to us is a free gift that can neither be earned or lost. It's something that you give us because of who you are. Lord, help us to receive that love. Every one of us can take a step into growing deeper and putting our roots down deeper into your unlimited love for us. And for some of us, maybe we're feeling a call to receive your love for the first time. So Lord, would you give boldness and courage to help us respond to your gift of love and then shape us into your people, into your church and help us at LifePoint to be people who are are not just expanding our knowledge of the truth but are putting into practice the truth that we know and who are living a lifestyle of worshiping and who are always open, who have open hearts to receiving your gift of love that is life-changing for us. We love you, Lord. 
We love you. And we praise you and thank you for your love extended to us.